we're going to do this morning is I, I want to discuss, start off by discussing two different words. Can everybody hear me okay? We need to start having a mic soon, I think. Two different words we're going to discuss. And by the way, it's good to see some parents here today. We've got Megan's parents here. Uh, we've got Gwen Carroll's mom and dad here. And we've got Christy's mom here and sister too, right? So we've got some, uh, some relatives. Is this, is, there, is this a special weekend or something? Just so happens. What's that? It's oh, it is. Man. I did not know that. Um, all right. What I want to do is we're going to split into little groups this morning, twos and threes. All right. So just kind of turn to whoever you're next. Twos or threes. If somebody's sitting by themselves and they're being stubborn and they don't want to be part of a group, just make sure you include them in yours. And twos and threes. And we're, I want to discuss two different words. So first of all, everybody turn. Make a little, little group. All right, the two words. Well, we're going to discuss in your little groups the word retribution and restoration. So first of all, the word retribution, what are the images, thoughts, definitions that come to your mind when you hear the word retribution? Go. All right, everybody stop. Next word is restoration. What, what do you think of images when you hear the word restoration? All right, if I can have everybody's attention here. Let's hear it. What are, what are some thoughts you can, like, not, not every little group's going to share, but you can choose somebody in your little group to share if you'd like. What are, when you hear the word retribution, what were some of the thoughts, images, definitions that came to your mind? Paul? Um, well, the first thing that came to mind when I think we all talked about was retribution is kind of like destroying or vengeance, and restoration is kind of rebuilding. Okay, so like a compare and contrast and between the two. I just, I came up with this just in the very last second. I, when I think of Old Testament, I think more retribution. When I think of New Testament, I think more restoration. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very good, very good. What else? Terry said Jean-Claude Van Damme. Jean-Claude Van Damme for re- retribution? I said Batman. So if you combine the two, you can make Jean-Claude Van Damme and the Batman suit. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> Has Jean-Claude Van Damme ever played Batman before? <laughs> that might happen. When Hollywood hears this podcast. <laughs> forgiveness. For restoration. Or for retribution. Retribution, forgiveness. What else? What is it? Oh, let's, we can do both. Restoration, retribution. Making fresh and making young again for restoration. Making fresh and making young again. That's cool. I thought new life for restoration. restoration. New What's life. that again? New, new life, life for restoration. We live life because you can right. learn with mistakes and it's true. It's true. That's good. What were you saying, Sean? I was just going to say that retribution, but John's house community. That's true. And yeah. they'll probably also be seeking some restoration, too. Well, you will have to <laughs> No, I, I'm not sure. I can <laughs> you just lost me. Talk to Paul. He's a Timothy Paul student. <laughs> um, 
these words, I mean, if you break them down, uh, I'm missed. <laughs> Tribute means to give something to someone. Uh, to Re is the prefix that means again, right? So to, to pay again or to pay back, retribution, to pay back. We typically do think of retribution in a negative context, like the, the killer acted with no sense of retribution. Uh, but it, just in general, it's, it's you get what you deserve. You do good, you get paid back with good, you do bad, you get paid back with bad. That's retribution. Restoration, the word store, to fill, fill again. So something was at one time filled and it's been emptied out. And to restore is to fill it again. Something was once beautiful, and it's decayed. And so to restore is to make it beautiful again, which is important. Restoration is an important word for the, gar the garden. It's, it's a very important word for us. And when we think of really just about everything that we do, from restoring relationships, restoring uh, <laughs> restoring intergenerational relationships, uh, Miss Dolores, who, by the way, Ms. Dolores asked me to tell everybody that she's gone this weekend to Pennsylvania to visit somebody, but she wanted me to let everybody know because she didn't want you to worry about her because she's not here. Um, but Ms. Dolores, I was sitting in her house a couple weeks ago, and, and she, she said, what she said, had said a number of times, she said, when I look around the neighborhood, the young people just don't respect the old people. And uh, it may, I, 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 I kind of agree with her. Like, I see... Not, not in the, the garden, but in, in culture as a whole, there's a huge gap between the generations where the, the younger generation tends to uh, trample over the older generation. The older generation can so often see the younger generation as, as a problem. And there's this big gap. And, and so one thing that, that I uh, am enjoying is as the garden, as the garden develops is we're developing multi-generational. We're... we're we have the opportunity to have people like Miss Dolores share years of experience with us. And, and she is her, every time, she, every day she walks out, her, she, she, she's just like, I love this, I love this, I love what you guys are doing, you know? It's so cool. Um, but restorations, restoring relationships, restoring multicultural, cross-cultural relationships, restoring, I love how Isaiah puts it. He says, restoring streets with dwellings in Isaiah chapter 58. It's a big part of who we are. It's big, a big part of the garden community is to restore streets with dwellings. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen this in, in glimpses and bits and pieces of alley cleanups and literally just cleaning up streets. And I think, I think Paul's Saturday morning group is going to be seeing that more and more as they actually go into these dwellings and, and restore uh, re relationally as, all, as well as helping out <coughs> cleaning and it's restoring streets with dwellings. And I wonder what, what would it look like for the garden one day to take entire blocks and to literally restore streets with dwellings and to rebuild homes and, and pour people back into neighborhoods where people have left. Restoration. And then this, this great, I mean, beyond all of this, this great theological concept of restoration, which drives us. I mean, it's not just for social reasons that we do this. But it's this great theological belief that humanity has been restored with God. So restoration is a pretty big deal. There's this story of a rich man and a poor man and a lamb. 
the uh, rich man and the poor man, they lived in the same town. And the rich man had a lot of sheep and a lot of cattle. You know, tons of, as, as many as you can imagine. A lot of sheep, a lot of cattle. And the poor man had one little lamb that, that, that he loved. The lamb had grown up with his children. Um, do you guys like lambs? How many lamb lovers do we have? Can anybody make like a really nice lamb sound? Oh, what's a lamb set? <laughs> I wanted the audio. Thank you, Cheryl. Bah. This this poor man bought this lamb with his own money. The lamb was raised with his children. He let the lamb eat with him. He would actually let the lamb drink out of his cup. He would drink his orange juice in the morning and he would give his lamb a sip of orange juice in the morning. Kind of gross, I know, but he loved his lamb. He would sleep with his lamb in his arms at night, like his little lovey, his little stuffed animal, but it was real. It was a lamb. <laughs> uh, he, he, I mean, it was like a daughter to him. He loved this lamb. The rich man, on the other hand, with all of this cattle and all of these, these sheep, had a traveler come and visit him. And the traveler gets there and the traveler's a little hungry. And so the rich man, as custom, was to, was to make a meal for, uh, for the traveler. And so he thought, you know, veal parmesan is a nice, refreshing comfort food, right? So he looked out at his sheep and he was like, ah, I don't know if I want to kill any of my sheep. Even though I have tons of them and I'm very wealthy and I could buy more. And I don't have any connection with any of my sheep. I don't want to kill any of my sheep for this traveler. And so he looked across town at this poor man with this one little lamb. And in his power, he snuck over there and he grabbed the little poor man's little lamb and he took the, took the lamb and he slaughtered it and he made veal parmesan for his travel. Now, what is your initial reaction when you hear that story? Share. Took one of his children. Somebody dear, something dear to him. What else? Justice. Injustice. Greed. Great word. Greed. Greed. What'd you say, Carrie? Why was it greed? Greed. Yeah. Any, any, anyone else? Initial reactions. Anger. This this story was told to David, King David in the Bible. The David that killed Goliath was made king. Wrote all a lot of the psalms. This David was. Or the, the story was told to David. And when David heard it, naturally thinking that it's probably a true story, something that happened under his watch, David is outraged. All right? Now, before we get into that, I want to go a little backstory here. All right? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. First, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Did anybody spill coffee on their Bibles this week? I hope you did. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you for not coming last week. (laughs) 2 Samuel chapter 11. And actually, we didn't pray. I want to pray before I start. Can we do that? God, I thank you for this time to come together and, uh, and, and look at these ancient stories and ancient words and writings and uh, poetry, and we ask that you uh, make these words come alive to our heart through your spirit moving in us. In Jesus' name, 
Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 2. This is the little pre-story here before, before David was told this story about the little lamb. Uh, verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the place uh, of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. A year goes by, and the weight of what David has done begins to crush down on him. Uh, David writes in Psalm 32 later, he writes that while he was silent, during this time of silence, where he didn't share it with anybody, he certainly didn't share it with God. During this time of silence, he said, my bones were crushed. (coughs) In Psalm 38, he talks about how how he, he was bowed down and, and bowed low. And he was weeping. He was mourning day and night, day and night. Because the weight of what he had done. So David, let's, let's continue with this a little bit here. He's, he uh, gets Bathsheba pregnant. Um, now he has to cover it up, right? Either repent or cover it up. So he chooses not to repent, he chooses to cover it up. And so to cover it up, what he does is he calls for Uriah, and Uriah is out fighting a battle. He calls for Uriah to come home and to go into his, uh, into his house and sleep with his wife. Uriah gets to his house and spends the night sleeping outside the front door of his house. And after, after as his question, he's like, I can't do what my fellow soldiers can't do. They can't have their wife. And so I'm not going to go and sleep with the, in the comfort of my bed, and I'm not going to enjoy my wife, because my fellow soldiers, he's this man of integrity, you know? And so David is frustrated now. Like, this was my plan. Like, it could have, you know, it would have answered the whole pregnancy problem that we now have. And so he sends Uriah back to battle. But not, he doesn't just send him back to battle. He doesn't just say, okay, go ahead. David's fine. If he's going to continue to cover up his last um, attempt, is to make sure that Uriah is killed. And uh, and so then Uriah Uriah can be killed. David can then take Bathsheba and get her pregnant and all this kind of stuff, and nobody would ever question anything. So Uriah he puts Uriah in the front front line where he's sure to be killed, and, and Uriah dies. And David takes Bathsheba as his wife. She becomes pregnant. Already is pregnant. He's he's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a murderer. And so a year goes by and nobody knows what's going on. 
the last line of chapter 11, it says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And David, here's the thing, David knows the Lord. I mean, he knows that what he has done has displeased the Lord, which is why later he would write how tormented he was, how this is crushing him. And it's not because he's sorry. It's not because he's repenting. I mean, he has yet, he, he, goes, he doesn't write any psalms. He puts the heart down. He has no creative juices flowing through him anymore. And he can't even approach God because he knows that God is not happy with him. And so it's easier then to keep covering it up and keep running from God than it is to just stop, turn around, and face God and say, I repent. I'm sorry. So he covers it up. He keeps hiding it, and, it, and it, it's destroying him. You guys ever been there before? Where something, you're, you're, you're silent about it? There's something that you are hiding that you will not admit to yourself, you won't admit it to your friends, and you certainly won't admit it to God. Because if you admit it to God, then that means you, you have to either face his wrath or repent, or it's just not going to be pretty. You're just like, I, I would, I'd rather run. I'd rather just pretend like everything's fine and convince myself that it's okay, when in, in reality, it's not. And you know it's not because it feels as if your bones are wasting away. It feels as if uh, you have nothing left and you are being crushed and you have no creativity. and You can't write these songs of praise anymore. So, what is going to happen? I'm sure in David's mind, I mean, believing in this God, the ancients believed in a God that required an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, when I was a child, my neighbor, Glenn Benner, in 1986, killed another one of my neighbors, and then another girl. And within six months or so, he was caught and uh, pled guilty. And in 2006, he laid down on a bed and was given a lethal injection. Right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, and the, the brother of the girl that he killed on my block, um, after he, he witnessed the death and after he died, the brother uh, was, was still just filled with ang- anger. Filled with rage. So, so here's David, and he's got blood on his hands. And I don't doubt that David fully believes that if and when the truth comes out, especially if he ever faces God again about this, that he is going to die. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, he's going to lose his life. It's going to be demanded of him. And so the weight crushes down upon him. So does God send military to conquer him? Does God send uh, a firing squad? Does God send sickness to plague him? No. God sends, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan was a prophet. So God sent a prophet. And this is important to, to kind of gather here. Instead of sending a military to conquer, instead of sending a sickness to lead to his death, God sends a prophet to David. And so Nathan comes and Nathan tells David about this story. Now, 
David is living in this mentality that what he has done is going to determine what God does to him. This is religion. Religion says that I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Because I do these right things, God accepts me. Or because I do these wrong things, God does not accept me. So it's, that's akin to me telling my daughter that if you obey me, you will be my daughter. That's what religion says. Motivation is based on fear and it's based on insecurity. And we obey God in order to get things from God. And guys, we do this all the time. It's so easy. When we, when we start thinking about religion, it's so easy to point at like, you know, those people that go to church in real church buildings and wear suits to church, those are the religious. No, no, no. We're the religious half the time. Like, let's not start pointing fingers at anyone else. And I will, I'm going to confess this, this morning that I fall into this myself. When is it that we fully rely on God? When is it that, we, that we're fully, like, trying to live the Christian life? We're trying to live holy. We're trying to be godly. When is it? It's when something big is coming up, right? It's when we have a motive and a reason to live holy and live godly. You know when uh, I am most tempted, the most challenging times for me, it's, it's Sunday evening and Monday morning. Because for the la- latter half of the week, I'm preparing a teaching, I'm, I'm living, I, I don't want to speak as a hypocrite, <laughs> trying to live the godly life, trying to live pure and holy. And then as soon as it's done, that is the moment that the enemy sneaks in and begins to test and tempt because I become spiritually, I spiritually relax, maybe the best way to put it. We do this when we have a test coming up, if you're in school, or a project coming up at your job, or uh, bills that have to be paid and we don't have the money to pay them, and we start getting holy again, we start living the godly life, you know, we, we try not to sin and we, we think about God a lot and we pray more, and then as soon as that passes, as soon as we pass the test, or as soon as... Uh, the, the project is over. As soon as we get the job, what happens? We, be, we, we feel like it's okay to sin again. Just a little bit. <laughs> because now we don't have to rely on God so much. Now we can just rely on ourselves for a little while. And so we feel like it's okay. And this is, guys, when we do this, it's, it's in that moment that we, we should stop and say, wow, I am a really religious person. I'm using God to accrue power. I'm just simply, I'm acting in a certain way to get God to do certain things for me. That's all it is. Repentance happens when we, when we fully repent of the good things that we do because of why we do them, not just the bad. So here's David living in this mentality. Bad things are going to happen because I've done something bad. God sends a prophet Nathan tells David this story about the rich man and the poor man and all the sheep and cattle over here. And then this one little cute little lamb that, that the rich man came and he stole and he turned it into veal parmesan. I don't think that was in there. Turned it into something. Probably veal. I mean, it is veal, right? I don't Hold on, hold on. I have lived my life believing that veal is a lamb. Veal is a See, I didn't do my studying this week. I must have done something wrong. Um, lamb Parmesan. I, I apologize. Can you guys forgive me? Roasted lamb. 
And when David hears this story, he's naturally thinking, this is something that happened under my watch in my kingdom. And I want you to see how he responds in verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is outraged, righteous indignation towards this injustice, towards this, this situation that... Yeah, I mean, you can't fathom it. Why would why would a rich man do such a thing? And this, guys, is what religious people do. I need a plank. This will work. Somebody turn to Luke quickly. This is like sword drill time. Turn to Luke chapter six, verse forty-one. Just somebody turn there and read it out loud. You don't all have to turn there. Just somebody who can get there fast. Chapter 6? Yes. Verse 41. Let me try this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? <laughs> this is what's happening here. All right? Somebody's using a saw. They're using a circular saw. You know, you know, you, know, you get dust in your eye once in a while because you're not very good at it. And so here is a religious person pointing at that person with sawdust in his eye saying, You idiot. Like, you don't know how to use a saw? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the image that Jesus gives here. You have a plank in your eye, and you're laughing and pointing at the person who has sawdust in their eye. David is looking at this person who has stolen a lamb and saying he deserves to die, whereas David has, has committed adultery, he's lied, and he's murdered. Wow. And so then we look at Nathan's response in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this has been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. And at this, I mean, David is fully confronted. You know, this righteous indignation that he was having towards this man with sawdust in his eye. He realizes that he's had a plank in his own eye for the last year. And he... And he turns, finally, turns face to face with God and repents. Look at verse 13. He says, that, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Imagine this, this, this load which is just lifted off of him. This, this crushing weight which has been making his bones weak, as he says in, in uh, Psalm 32. He's been weeping every day. He finally repents. What I have done was a sin. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, 
You have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The, the son born to you will die. And at this, David is just crushed. He's, he's, he sees everything for what it is. He sees his how terrible his actions were. He sees, he sees the grace of God in sparing his life. And now the loss of his son is overwhelming. And he, and he turns fully to God and he repents. And there's... There's two, actually, two, two psalms that David writes at this moment in history. He, he writes Psalm 32 and he writes Psalm 51. And I love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, when the divine message had aroused his, speaking of David, his dormant conscience and made him see the greatness of his guilt, he wrote this psalm, Psalm 51 he's referring to. He had forgotten his psalmody while he was indulging in his flesh but he returned to his heart when his spiritual nature was awakened, and he poured out his song to the accompaniment of sighs and tears. David, after a year of writing nothing, not playing the harp, nothing happened creatively in his, in his spirit, in his soul. In this moment of repentance, what happens? He's, he begins to create again. He picks up his heart again. He begins to make music. And I'm sure it wasn't a joyful sound. It's... it's, it's songs of uh, utter poverty and brokenness and, and also the, the grace of God which has been poured down on him that he fully sees now let's turn together to Psalm 51 can we do that? Psalm chapter 51 I would like to do actually is read this entire psalm together. Um, I have an NIV. The Blue Bibles are NIV. Does anybody have a Blue Bible? If you have a Blue Bible, turn in there. Um, if you don't have an NIV, uh, just read along in your own Bible silently and follow along. It's just worded a little differently in different translation, translations. Um, but those, okay, let's, let's read together. Psalm chapter 51. And guys, let me, let me say this. If you have been silent, there is this place deep within, it's, it's a dark place in your heart that you're not willing to even admit to yourself you haven't been. You haven't admitted to, to a brother or sister, and you certainly haven't admitted to God. Can we please like, allow God to begin to wash through us as we read this psalm of repentance? Chapter 51. Let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. Do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, full burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Wow. Intense, isn't it? In Psalm uh, 32, David talks about how blessed that man is that God, who, who God does not hold uh, his sins against. David, nowhere else do we see such darkness of sin, and nowhere else do we see the great grace of God towards David than in this story right here. I mean, David is experiencing the fullness of God's grace as he is completely restoring the relationship, restoring life. I mean, it's not simply this idea of a relationship with God, but it's, really, it's, it's, it's life for David. Before he was restored, he was living in a dark, dark place. Tears, no music, nothing. And now he's restored, and it's, it's life. It's, it's real life. Let's give it back to him. Because God is not a God of retribution. God is a God of restoration. He's not a God of retribution. He's a God of restoration. And thank him for it. Because if the religious believe that God is a God of retribution, and if God was a God of retribution, what does the word even mean? It means to pay back for what you've done, to give, give it back to you. And so the religious live in this mentality because if they do good, then God will do good to them. Retribution. If they do bad, then God will do bad to them. Retribution. But here's the, here's the thing. Even when we do good, we're doing it simply to try to accrue power from God for our benefit, which in and of itself is worthy of destruction. God is not a God of retribution, but he's a God of restoration. Now there is this unnamed character, who's sort of a hero <coughs> character that we easily pass over in the story of David that we just looked at and read. This, this little son, this baby. 
who died in David's stead. And as I'm reading through this story, I can't shake this. <laughs> David's son died in David's stead. And at first, I see this as like injustice. How can that be? But I am convinced that the reason the story is recorded there, the reason I am convinced that this is pointing us to something much greater. It's pointing us to another son who died in someone's stead. See, David's son, yes, died. And because of that, David had life. David had a restored relationship with God. His son died in his stead. There was another son who came, who died as well. In the place of all humanity. Complete, utter restoration for all of humanity. And this son, as he's hanging on the cross, he looks at those who are wrongly executing him. They've wrongly accused him, and now they, they, they're executing him in such a brutal fashion, and he looks down on them, and what does he say? He says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The heart of restoration, fully seen and, and, and experienced and exhibited and acted upon in the person, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where, where the gospel says, you know, we do these things so God does this for us, or I'm sorry, where religion says that, the gospel, on the other hand, says we are accepted, we are restored, therefore we obey. It's not the other way around. We don't obey to get God's acceptance. We don't do these things just so God will give us a thumbs up and help us pass that test or get the job or do, do well in the project. We obey. We live a holy, godly life because we have been restored. Because through Christ we are accepted. Our obedience then is it's this opportunity now to, to become like God through Christ. To actually take the heart of God this, this heart of forgiveness and restoration, and to then take that upon ourselves and say, wow, as we follow Christ and as we uh, live a, a life that, that glorifies God, what we're doing is we're not trying to accrue power for ourselves. We're not trying to get something for ourselves. We simply get the opportunity to resemble Christ. The same Christ who hung on the cross and looked at his people who are doing him wrong and said, Father, forgive them but they don't know what they're doing. There was a father whose wife and child were killed in a drunk driving accident. Killed by a drunk driver. And while this young drunk driver is in court, awaiting his sentence, the father asks the judge for permission to speak one-on-one -on -one with the drunk driver. And so he, he sits down with him. And across the table, he looks at this 
this young guy who, who's responsible for the loss of his wife and his child. He will never again kiss his wife and never again hold his child. And he looks at across in the eyes of the killer and he says, I want you to know something. I forgive you. Then he goes to the judge and he asks if instead of a long-term uh, life sentence, if the judge could let him off and uh, with the condition that this young man travels with the father across the country and speaks to teenagers about drunk driving. Because God is a God of restoration. There was a, uh, a, a friend of mine, she's actually, when she told me the story, she was 101, older, an older lady. <laughs> she told me, I, I love, she's one of my best friends. I, I don't see her anymore, though. She told me the story of years ago of her uncle. Uh, he was a, actually a pastor in Baltimore, and one of the couples in his church, they were, they were an older couple. They, they had moved to this neighborhood, uh, not this neighborhood, a, a Baltimore neighborhood, uh, when it was nice, and then urban decay happened, and all of a sudden they're living in a really dangerous, rough neighborhood. So the older couple is thinking about moving out to a nice, quiet place and trying, trying to decide what they should do. Before they had made their decision, they're still living there in their, their little row house. One night, as they're sleeping, they are woken when they hear... A, uh, a crashing sound downstairs. And so the husband, the old, this old man, gets up and starts walking down the stairs to see what's going on. And halfway down the stairs, he's met with a gun right in his face. With this, this young dude, practically a kid, holding a gun in his face. And they just stand there for a moment. And all of a sudden, the kid's hand drops, his arm drops, and the hand lets go of the gun. The gun falls to the stairs. And this old man is now looking at this kid, and they're just standing, staring at each other. And the old man says, what, what do you want? What are you here for? And the kid says, I, was, I came to rob you, but my arm froze up. And the old man says, why don't we go down and sit at the, t sit at the table, and can we just talk about this? And so... They turn the lights on. He and she both go down. They sit at the table with this young intruder, the dining room table, and they, and they start to hear his story. And they learn that his parents left him when, when he was very young to fend for himself. He's got nobody in his life. He said the only people he looks up to are the older kids who uh, are making a lot of money through robbing people. And... So when he, when he finishes telling his story, this, this kid looks across the table and says, now aren't you going to call the police? And the old man's re response, he, he, he again, he sits at this table, he's looking across the table, looks in the, boy, in the eyes of this intruder, and he says, no, we're not going to call the police. We want you to be our son. And the next morning, they begin an, an adoption process and actually adopt this intruder. Because God is a God of restoration. You see, when, 
when we embrace the grace and the restoration of Christ that flows through us and we see restoration begin to happen all around us. David did not have militaries sent to him to conquer him. He didn't lose his life. Because God is a God of restoration. This father who lost his wife and his child in a drunk driving accident looks across the table and says, I want you to know that I forgive you. Because God is a God of restoration. And then this old man, this old woman adopt. They look across the table and they say, we want you to be our son. Because God is a God of restoration. Is there, is there anyone here who is tired of living the destructive life? You're tired of it. You're tired of the pain that it brings. Living in a life which causes uh, destruction and just simply a lack of joy. Is there anyone here who has a long list of wrongs that you've been hiding and running from? And you've been silent. You won't admit it to yourself, not to your friends, and most of all, not, not to God. And you need to repent, turn to God and say, I have sinned and I want to be restored through the son that died in my stead. Or is there anyone here who wants God to be a God of retribution so the person can pay for what they did to you? And you need to embrace the forgiveness the grace of Christ. You need to embrace the restoration of God as Christ hung on, hung on the cross and said, I forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Is there anyone here simply willing and ready to embrace the restorative life of Jesus Christ? As a response, can we just stand together? God, we look to you right now. We thank you for the fact that you have always been a God of restoration. We thank you for these glimpses that we see all throughout, which point us to, to your heart, to the, to the heart of Christ. And God, as we embrace the grace of Christ, as we embrace the gospel, I pray that we won't, it won't be about us and that we won't become selfish and that we'll actually embrace Christ's life and that we will say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That we will seek restoration in every relationship. And most importantly, that we will not keep a long list against you, but we will constantly be falling back into your grace being reminded of this fact that you are indeed the God who restores us.
thank you for everything that you are.